From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. 20 years after Timor-Leste's vote for independence led to bloody retaliation from Indonesia, the country's relationship with Australia remains fraught. John Martinkus on what happened after the ballot and what's happening in East Timor now. Piece of paper or anything, John, or is it all? No, I've been thinking all morning about what I'm going to say. Because, John, you've been a very long time foreign correspondent across many parts of the world, not just East Timor. Mm. I basically started reporting foreign news in East Timor in about '95, and then after that, I went to Aceh, then I went to West Papua, then, of course, I went to Iraq. John Martinkus is a foreign correspondent. He writes for the Saturday paper. I got kidnapped, I got blown up, shot at the whole palaver. Then Afghanistan. I went to Afghanistan about six times and they quite affected me, yeah. John, you recently attended the celebrations for the 20th anniversary of East Timor gaining its independence from Indonesia. What was it like to be there and witness that? President of the Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste. His Excellency, the Lord Francisco Guterres Jr., to lead us in a minute of silence to remember the fallen heroes of our fight to independence. Um, to be honest, it was incredibly satisfying. The Timorese people, they've created their own country, a very united and very forward-looking people, very strong. The Timorese are really good at putting on a show and they had lots and lots of speeches and marching bands and, you know, the whole palaver. And who's there? Everyday people, there was thousands of them. Um, and they were there in the stadium and then there was also people, a lot of people outside. And it was great. I was very lucky because um, I was able to see some pretty top-level guys who I'd known throughout the struggle, throughout like the mid-90s and all. Back then they'd been just like guys in the jungle fighting and now they're the leaders, you know, they've got their country back. When the fireworks went off, everybody joked because we all thought it was gunfire. And, um, and then we just laughed about it because it was like, it's not gunfire, it's just fireworks to celebrate the 20 years. I mean, nobody's really forgotten that time. Um, and for me, personally, and like so many others I spoke to on that trip, it was like it was yesterday. We'd all shared this big trauma, which was the Indonesian retribution to their vote for independence. You were in East Timor in early 1999, prior to that vote for independence being called. What was it like? There was a remarkable, you know, change, actually, around about January, when Howard sent a letter to her baby, which is the Indonesian Prime Minister who just died. And he opened the possibility for a vote on an independence. But his program was like, oh, maybe in 10 years we can have a vote. 
Her baby sort of turned around and said, oh, look, we'll just have the vote now. And then the UN got involved and and it was almost like the Indonesian military did all they could before the UN came in to find and kill those that they thought sought independence. It started really quickly. So, John, it was announced on September 4th, 1999 that almost 80% of East Timor's population had voted for independence. And then there was further violence from the Indonesian government, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. As journalists, we had um, access to documents that were leaked to us about the Indonesians' plans to carry out this operation of retribution, they called it. And it basically detailed what they would do, which was um, they would depopulate Dili, they would depopulate Bacau, they would depopulate all the major towns. And that's exactly what they did. They drove around in trucks and they shot everybody and made them get on the trucks and, you know, and took them over the border to West Timor or they put them on boats or whatever. But they they pretty much moved oh, probably about... 60% of the population of the country. All my sisters stay in Dili, but I do not know their, their situations. Do you think they are alive? I do not know. They are alive or, no, alive or died, I do not know. It was a terrible experience. You couldn't do anything because these guys were pointing M16s at you, you know? So you had to do what they said. And often we couldn't even really report it because um, no one was interested. You know, I was pitching stories to like the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age, whatever, and they weren't they weren't picking them up. It was very frustrating um, to have to witness that and not be able to report it. And John, this came after decades of violent occupation. In the twenty four years of the occupation, there's been many estimates thrown around, anywhere between one hundred thousand to three hundred thousand. But the fact is, we're talking about a third of the population. Everybody's lost somebody. You know, everybody has lost a family member or, or a close friend or whatever. And what about the scale of the violence that immediately followed the vote for independence? Yeah, look, the UN says about 2,600 were killed after the ballot was announced, which I think is about right. But also what they don't put into that equation is the amount of people who were killed before because the violence really started in about late 98. Yep. And, yeah, there was massacres in Sawai, there was massacres in Kassa, there was massacres in Lakisa. You know, it just went on and on and on. We'll be right back. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. John, Australian peacekeeping forces arrive in East Timor on the 20th of September, 1999. It's two weeks after the independence vote. That's right, yeah. What the Australians did in the first few days, they secured the airport, they secured the port and a few streets behind the port on the waterfront. But they only secured a tiny part of the capital and what was going on in the rest of the country at the same time was there were still 16,000 Indonesian soldiers there and and there were still militias and there were still police and and they were kind of in a, a bit of a desperate situation in that they were um, trying to sort of shoot their way out. The Indonesian forces. Yeah, yeah. I remember going back to West Timor probably about a month or so later and um, it was awful. Like there was refugee camps and... And the people there were treated really badly and there was like rapes and stuff like that going on and, you know, people couldn't defend themselves. And, and they killed some nuns and a priest and, yeah, yeah, it was a very, very bad time. It was kind of like this just absolute vacuum of authority and the Australians did restore order. They did do their job and they did do a good job and... You know, all credit to them, but it just took them a while. As a journalist there, you know, we had been calling for like a year for armed intervention <laughs> um, because the situation was just getting so bad and so bad and, you know, it just kept getting worse. So it make us very disappointed because for me, for me, I think that the interfaith forces was were very late. I, I didn't know uh, how about their their strategy, but I think they are they were very late. And John, what's the Timorese view of Australia now? Yeah, look, it's it's problematic. The Timorese are and will always be forever grateful for Australia's intervention. In that period um, post independence, there was a fair level of resentment from Timorese because they had lost everything. You know, they're very proud people and they're very tough people Mm. and they don't like being pushed around. Mm. And, of course, the case of Witness K continues to strain the relationship as well. Yeah. They're really annoyed about it. They're really, you know, angry about it. And senior figures in East Timor remain critical of Australia on this as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Horu is quite... I spoke to him at length in Dili last week and he was quite blunt about that. He was like, this is this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. This this case shouldn't be pursued. 
and he's calling for the case to be dismissed. Like, no bones about it. Like, that's what he says. They view it as Australia acting like a colonial power and they're very sensitive to that because they have been colonised by the Portuguese and the Indonesians, etc. And that that case underscored, you know, this kind of like almost a bullying from Australia and they were furious, you know. And the fact is, I mean, Scott Morrison only answered three questions in the entire day it was in Dilly. A pretty ordinary performance, you know, given the gravity of the ceremony and event. How is life in East Timor 20 years after independence? Well, it's still pretty hard, you know. If you just go to the centre of Dili and you hang out in the sort of expat bubble in a way, it seems like everything's great, you know. You've got, like, you know, power and Wi-Fi and hotels and all that sort of thing, you know. But... For the average East Timorese, like if you go two or three kilometres out in the suburbs, um, life's still pretty pretty hard. I mean, talking basic stuff like electricity outages, really bad phone signals, no internet, no hot water, no um, reliable clean water that you can actually drink. You know, just simple stuff like that. You know, people still die of dengue and malaria and kids still die of diarrhoea and stuff and that's that's no good. They've still got a long way to go, but they're getting there and because they do have this really very strong community spirit, which I don't think I've seen in any other country and and I think that's a result of the, of the whole shared trauma that they've all gone through. John, thank you so much for being here and talking through your reporting. No problem. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12th. Book now at aco.com.au. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. Elsewhere in the news, in New South Wales, a spill motion against Premier Gladys Berejiklian was cancelled after being brought by three MPs angered over the state's abortion reforms. At the same time, New South Wales Sports Minister John Sadotti has stood down from Cabinet ahead of a potential investigation by the Independent Commission Against Corruption into his property interests. He denies wrongdoing. And a class action lawsuit will be launched against the Commonwealth over the robo-debt collection scheme. Run by Gordon Legal, it will argue that the Commonwealth unlawfully seized money on the basis of a flawed algorithm. The action was announced by Bill Shorten from his role as Shadow Minister for Government Services. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you Thursday. <laughs>